Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. This morning, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12 as we work through our series together. And while Easter may have come and gone on our calendars, in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we're still in the week leading up to Easter, and we're going to be there for a little while. You may remember, as we're working through, if you want to think about the calendar of that last week of Jesus' life, we're looking at the, on, uh, at the events of Tuesday right now. Recall that on Sunday, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on the donkey, and then he had cleansed the temple, most likely on Monday, and then he arrived Tuesday morning and was confronted by a delegation from the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, to ask, where did he think he got the authority to do something like overturn their temples, or their their taxes and their, their money tables in the temple? And Jesus had responded by challenging them for rejecting John's baptism and his ministry and told the parable of the talents about the owner's son who was killed by the tenants, warning of the judgment that was coming on Jerusalem for rejecting him as the promised Messiah and the Son of God. When we ended last time in Mark 12, 12, this delegation had retreated in defeat, angry but afraid of Jesus' popularity with the crowds. But these Jewish leaders don't give up easily. They have a lot at stake. And so they regroup and a surprising alliance forms. An alliance between Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians. Now these groups were no friends. In fact, they disagreed strongly with each other about Scripture and about the Roman government. And at best, they thought each other were wrong, and at worst, they thought each other were dangerous or ungodly. But they were willing to set aside those minor accusations of dangerous and ungodly in order to unite against Jesus, whom they all mutually opposed. Now, having failed at direct confrontation, they decide to take a different tact and go for espionage. They're going to send in some undercover agents to try to trick Jesus and goad him into saying something damaging through a series of questions that we'll look at over the coming weeks. And this morning we want to look at question number one, so follow with me as we read Mark 12, verses 13 to 17. This is God's word. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, "'Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion.' For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Father, we thank you for this passage of your word. Would you use it this morning to convict our hearts where they need to be convicted, draw us to Christ, 
and lead us to honor you with all that we are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, they say that in order to keep the peace around the dinner table with extended family members, you should avoid the topics of religion and politics. And this morning, we're going to talk about both. Now, as a church family, I uh, would expect and trust that we will find strong agreement as we look at Jesus' call to submit to and to obey God. But even in the church, when it comes to issues of taxes and government, I know that we face disagreement. In fact, I wonder sometimes if Jesus were to show up today in the church and there were some leaders who would want to oppose him, if they might not also ask his opinion on politics, government, and taxes in hopes of what he said, losing credibility with one part of the church or another. So I think we need to honestly agree that we're going to need to approach this passage with humility and care and faithfulness to the Word of God as we seek to follow Christ together this morning. Now, summarizing Jesus' main point is really not hard uh, at all here. He instructs his people to pay their taxes, even to a pagan and immoral government, while reminding them that God is their highest authority to whom they owe their ultimate obedience. But in order to understand this statement and dig in a bit more, we need to consider the background of this question, the substance of Jesus' answer, and the implications of Jesus' teaching. And so that's what we're going to do today. And we'll start by looking a bit more at the background of this question. This first group trying to trap Jesus is a mix of Pharisees and Herodians. They come to Jesus with mock sincerity, attempting to throw him off with flattery and pretending to want to know the way of righteousness. They say, we know you, Jesus. You are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And the implication they're making is, of course, Jesus, you're going to tell us what you really think. You're not going to just give a safe answer because of what people think around you, aren't you, Jesus? Now, of course, while completely unintended, their description of Jesus is a perfect description of him. He is indeed the perfect man of honesty and integrity and in truth. He is indeed not swayed by the opinions of man, but the perfect teacher of the way of God. And we might add that this is a pretty good description of how we should speak and act as followers of Christ as well not swayed by people's opinions, but speaking the way of God in integrity and in truth. The irony, of course, is that if only these Jewish men had actually believed what they said, they would have heard from Jesus the perfect words of truth and the words of life. But of course, they don't believe it for a second. They think he is a fraud and a blasphemer, and so they lie and flatter trying to lull Jesus into a corner. And then they spring their trap So, Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, everybody hates taxes, of course, but this was an electrically charged question. The tax in question was the poll tax. It was a a denarius or about a day's wage that was due to Rome once a year. And this tax was actually a fairly recent one. It had just been introduced by Rome about 25 years or so before this. And when they first instituted, it had immediately led to a revolt in Israel, which Rome had to stamp out. 
And so the Herodians, that is Herod's party, are right there with pen and paper in hand, ready to jot it down if Jesus were to say that they should not pay taxes to Caesar. Remember that Herod's party acted in league with Rome. They thrived off of Rome's rule. And so if Jesus opposes paying taxes, they're going to go straight to their friends and the Roman authorities who will have Jesus arrested in minutes for inciting another opposition to the tax. But on the other side, we have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees hate this tax along with the people. And so they're waiting with bated breath in case Jesus should say that they should pay the tax. And this, again, is not just a matter of hating taxes. Remember that every single one of these denarii, these silver coins, read right on the front, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The very coin reminded Israel that they were under Rome's rule, and it declared that the emperor himself is divine. And so many of the Pharisees and Jewish leaders actually argued that as God's people, paying this tax was immoral and a contradiction of God's lordship over them. In their minds, and therefore in the people's minds, you can't be from God and want us to pay taxes to an emperor who claims to be a god. Take it a step further though, this tax was exactly the sort of thing that the Jews were expecting the Messiah to save them from. They were expecting a political Messiah who would save them from this. And so if Jesus says to pay this tax, well, he can't be the Messiah. The Messiah would never support paying these taxes. And so if Jesus says to pay the taxes, the Pharisees will declare it from the street corners and turn the people against him. Now, I spent eight years competing in debate tournaments and one of our jobs in each, uh, each round was to cross-examine our opponents. And we were always looking for that golden question that could trap them where no matter what they said, it would damage their case. We would have killed for a question like this. Because it seems that regardless of his answer, Jesus is going to lose either his popularity or his life and the religious leaders are fine with either. And even if he doesn't answer at all, his refusal to answer will certainly damage his credibility. And so the trap is set. Of course, Jesus knew exactly what was coming and he could see their hearts. Mark tells us he knew their hypocrisy. And so he was not lulled or trapped at all. I love how one author puts it about these questions that are meant as traps for Jesus. He said, Given Jesus' divine knowledge and wisdom, Jesus is like the mouse who always escapes with the cheese. Good luck trapping him in his words. So let's go on secondly now, having looked at the background of the question, to consider the substance of Jesus' answer. And you'll note that Jesus Jesus doesn't have to sit back and think for a while here. He doesn't him and haw or pull at his beard or look off into space or down at his sandals for a few minutes. No, he immediately says... Why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius. So they bring him the denarius and he immediately says, whose likeness and inscription is this? Well, that's not a hard question. They're all looking right at it. So they say Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And Mark's gospel says that when they heard this answer, they marveled at him. And their amazement is justified 
Because Jesus doesn't just escape the trap here. He does so without evading the question, but actually by answering it head on with truth and authority in a way that exalts God, but does not undermine the state. By charging Israel to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, he okays and encourages paying taxes because taxes are part of the authority that belongs to the realm of the civil government, even if that government is pagan or immoral. And as Paul fleshes this logic out for us in Romans chapter 13, he says God is the one who instituted government as a proper authority to restrain chaos and wickedness and to build roads and order and to promote that which is good in order to enable society to function. And even pagan governments who don't care a whiff of God or for his laws are still instituted by him. And therefore, God's people, Paul says, are to pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. But while Jesus challenges and directs his people to pay taxes to legitimate authority, he also diminishes the significance of these temporal matters. Caesar wants his silver coins back? Fine, big deal. He can have his silver coins back. You, he says, have something more important to care about. You are to give to God the things that are God's. In saying this, Jesus actually contradicted the very denarius that they were looking at in a way that was right in line with what the Pharisees and the people would have wanted. Jesus is saying, give to Caesar his due. The people didn't want to hear that. But he's saying, but Caesar is not Lord and he is not divine. God is. And so we give to God the things that are God's. And if a silver coin has Caesar's image and shows that it belongs to Caesar... What bears God's image and shows that it belongs to God? His people do. We do. Our very lives, our very selves bear the image of God and remind us that we belong to him and are his and owe all of our allegiance and our obedience to him. And with that, Jesus recalls his people to their primary responsibility to to render themselves to God for his honor and glory. The call to to give to God the things that are God's is nothing less than a comprehensive call that impacts every single day of our lives. Just, Just think about this with me for a second. Students, those of you who are going to go to school tomorrow morning, Monday morning, when you show up on Monday morning, as you walk into school, you are called to give to God the things that are God's. And that means your life, your all, your diligent homework, your words to your friends, your attitudes, your response to teachers and parents. And you do this not because these are just the right things to do. No, you do them because they are the way that you offer to God what is God's. They are the way that you give yourself and worship and obedience to your Lord. And those of you who work on Tuesday, you're going to show up to work and you're called to give to God the things 
that are gone so you're to respect your boss and work diligently and treat fellow employees with grace and kindness and do so with honesty and truth as to the Lord. And on, on Wednesday, those of you who are athletes are to go to sports practice in order to do everything you do for the glory of God. And, and on Thursday, we're supposed to interact with our neighbors. And on Friday, we're supposed to serve our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And on Saturday, give all of our, our time and our money and our gifts and talents to the Lord. And on Sunday, return and worship Him with our whole heart and soul and lives and strengths. Because we're, we're His, all that we are, all that our lives, and we are to give to God the things that are God's. And that is a comprehensive, lifelong, every day, honoring and living for Him. Paul, I think, puts it best in Romans 12.1 when he says we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And this is our spiritual worship, the way we offer ourselves and worship to him. Suddenly, the people aren't thinking about taxes anymore. Whatever. Caesar wants his silver coins? Fine. Toss in some Ben Franklins if the government wants them. Whatever. We serve God as our Lord. Those are his realm. We are the Lord's. What an answer. No wonder these undercover agents stood in stunned silence and had nothing else to say. Who knew that a question about taxes could yield such a beautiful call to live for God and exalt him in everything we do while not undermining the state in which God has put us. And that, I believe, is the substance of Jesus' answer. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but render to God what is God's. But I want to go on now and think a little bit about the implications of Jesus' answer. We've heard this central call, but the implications of this are significant. Mark Dever is the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Many of you know Dever's name, and he tells of uh, having a close friend who is a, a Muslim, And he and his close Muslim friend were having a discussion over dinner one night, and they were talking together about the moral decline of our nation, a topic which the two very much agreed on. But as they were talking about the moral decline of our society, this Muslim friend suddenly stopped and said, that's the problem with Christianity. You have no vision for the state and for society as a whole, like Islam does. Endeavor asks, Was he right? Are Christians left helplessly wandering with questions about government and state? Endeavor answers with a resounding no. We are not left helpless. Endeavor turns to the passage this morning, Mark 12, 13 to 17, in order to establish Jesus' vision for Christians in the state. Now, If we are really going to talk about a Christian outline for a vision of government in the state, we need a week or a weekend conference, not 10 or 15 minutes at the end of a sermon. So I'm aware that I may raise as many or more questions as I answer. And our applications of these principles may uh, may need a lot of discussion. But I want to suggest four principles from this passage that should guide our thinking as Christians when it comes to government in the state. Principle Number one, Christians ought to be good citizens who honor their government. Scripture argues that governments do not get their legitimacy from their righteousness, nor do governments get their legitimacy from holding fair elections. 
Governments get their legitimacy because they are instituted by God. Paul says comprehensively in Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that have exist those that exist have been appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. In other words, according to Scripture, government is not a necessary evil. It is God's idea instituted for the punishment of evil and the promotion of what is good in order rather than chaos. But you'll notice from Paul's words that this is not just the idea of government that is instituted by God. Paul argues that those specific governments that exist have been instituted by God. And therefore, Paul says, we are to obey the laws, pay taxes, and give honor and respect to the governing authorities, even when we are talking about a pagan and immoral and utterly depraved state like Rome. Uh, John Calvin, writing about this passage, says that Christ here establishes that it is no contradiction or undermining of our service to God to obey the outward governments around us like it was for the Jews in Rome. J.C. Ryle put it this way, talking about this passage. He said, true Christianity was never meant to interfere with a man's obedience to the civil powers. So far from that being the case, it ought to make him a loyal and faithful subject. And I think this is why, from the earliest days, even while being killed and persecuted, Christian apologists argued that Christians make the best citizens. They pay their taxes. They acted honestly and with integrity. They prayed for the emperor. This, of course, was true of Israel as well. They were called to live in Babylon, paying their taxes, honoring the king, and seeking the welfare of the city in which they lived, even though they knew that some of those taxes were building golden statues to be bowed down to. Principle number one, Scripture is consistent. Christians are to be law-abiding, tax-paying citizens who honor and pray for their governing authorities. But principle number two, all earthly authority is limited and under God's authority. We submit to and honor government because God is ultimate and he tells us to, not because government is ultimate. And that means, of course, that if there is a conflict or a contradiction between God's laws and the government's laws, we obey God and not the government. I think of this in a, in a family. If you're a younger sibling and your older sibling tells you to do something that your parents had just told you the opposite, you don't obey the older sibling. You say, no, my parents have told me this and you follow it. And so it was for God's people. And thus you have Israel who sought the welfare of Babylon, but refused to bow down to the idol when commanded to. And you have Christians in Rome who honored the emperor but refused to deny Christ or call Caesar God. Maybe you think of, of the apostles in Acts 4:19, when they faced the Sanhedrin and said, you judge whether we ought to obey you rather than God. And the point is no. When there is a conflict, we obey God and not man. And that is what it looks like to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Obedience and honor, as God has called us, but... Render to God what is God who receives our ultimate obedience. Principle number three. I think Kevin DeYoung puts this well, commenting on this passage. Principle number three is this. Christians will be an international people who live under and submit to all sorts 
of civil governments. Jesus here kills the Jews' idea that when the Messiah would return, he would set up a nation of God and free them from pagan governments. That is not the expectation anymore. For the rest of history, Christ's people will be like Israel in Babylon, sojourners and exiles under the authorities of this world, not like Israel in Israel under a God-instituted king with legislated biblical laws. Now, before I continue, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I think it's important for us to remember that while there are rare times of unusual blessing in history, when such a great number of people in a particular nation or society turn to Christ, that even the laws and culture of that nation reflect biblical truth, and we rejoice and thank God when that is true. But that's not normative. That is not the pattern that we are to expect through history, nor are we called or responsible to build that kind of countries all around the world. The biblical expectation is that Christians will be a multitude sprinkled like salt throughout every state and nation, sojourners and exiles who bear witness to the hope of the gospel while we wait for God's kingdom to come. Now again, a clarification. Of course, part of seeking the welfare of our city, our state, part of being salt and light is to engage in civil society. It's to do so seeking truth and justice, to protect and care for the vulnerable and the oppressed, to vote and to work for the principles of justice and civic morality with every freedom and ability that that we have. And of course, our understanding of justice and morality and civility are defined by the character and word of God. So the kind of citizen we are is shaped by God's word. But our expectation and our goal is not to build kingdoms here. It is that we will be scattered and sprinkled under the various states of the world. That's principle number three. Principle number four. Christians keep our focus on the state in its proper perspective. And by that I mean we remember that every government of this world is temporary, limited, and not our primary focus or hope. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But our primary focus and responsibility is giving to God what is God's. Again, this is not undermining or diminishing the love that we have for the country in which God has placed us. This does not undermine the gratitude we have for significant blessings of living in a country that was founded on many biblical principles. Nor does it diminish our call and responsibility to use the freedoms and opportunities that we have to engage in the civic state. All of that is true. But it does remind us that no matter what the situation, we are exiles in this world. And this world is not our home. If we live under Chinese tyranny, we are exiles in this world. And this world is not our home. If we live under a representative democracy, we are exiles in this world, and this world is not our home. Now, I'm not saying those two are morally equal. I am not saying one is not a great blessing while the other is a great hardship. But I am saying that no matter what the case and the government structure or the state we're living, this world is not our home. I am saying that no matter what our governmental structure, we do not find our hope in 
or our security in, nor do we despair over what happens in our country because it is not ultimate. That is what we are saying here. In fact, I think we can go further and say with Paul, we can abound with freedoms and blessings or we can have none. I have learned to be content in all circumstances. I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. I am not for a second wanting us not to be thankful for the things the Lord has given us in this country, but I am wanting us to follow this principle to keep the proper perspective. And so is there a biblical vision for the state? Absolutely. It is very different than Islam's, but God gives us a vision for the state, one in which Christians are to be good, tax-paying, law-abiding citizens who work for the welfare of their country and the protection of human life in it, who pray for and honor their rulers, who obey the laws but always refuse to lie or dishonor or disobey God if that is asked of them because they have a higher authority in him. Christians do this in every country under every type of government, remembering the limited temporary nature of the state and looking to God for their security and their hope. And that is what is implied by Jesus' answer and confirmed across the pages of Scripture. Before we end, though, can I take just a minute to challenge our hearts? And I realize that by doing so, I'm going to focus the little time I have left on challenging us to examine our hearts for our sins rather than rallying us to the things that we agree on. I would hazard a guess that many of us have failed to honor the biblical call to honor, pray for, and respect our government and governing leaders. As I look at myself and my fellow Christians, I think there are several temptations we so easily fall prey to. On the one hand, we are tempted to mock and to denigrate those we disagree with in a way that sounds a lot more like AM talk radio than it does like God's word. We get caught up in cheering on Brandon or referring to the orange man in D.C. We get caught up in speaking with bitterness and anger rather than speaking the truth in humble courage. In 1 Peter 2, Peter called the Christians and said, If the Gentiles call us evil for doing good in righteousness, so be it. That happened in the first century, and that's happening today. But, he said, may they never have ground to call us evil for bitterness, mockery, slander, and that which is evil. And in the church, that is happening today as well. We are also, I think, in a second way, tempted to let the ends justify the means. But as God's people, we of all people should know that sacrificing morality, virtue, and character in order to get a result that we want has already sunk the ship. After all, principles in how we do things are as important to the flourishing of society and they are more important for our call to honor God than getting any particular result. Many of you know the name of Carl Truman. Carl Truman has so wisely called out the the madness around us in our culture. But a few months ago, he wrote a warning to Christians. He wrote, many Christians today talk of engaging the culture. But what is so interesting when compared to the ways that many Christians, right and left, do so today, is how respectful the ancient Christians were. They did not spend their time denouncing the evils of the emperor and his court. 
Rather, they argued positively that Christians made the best citizens, the best parents, the best servants, the best neighbors, the best employees, and they should be thus allowed to carry on with their lives without being harassed, even as they cared dearly for the people around them. Now, Truman clarifies. He says, I am not here calling for quiet passivism whereby Christians abdicate their civic responsibilities. Absolutely not, he says. We use every civic freedom and responsibility we have to work for what is good and for those around us. He says, what I am suggesting is that engaging in cultural warfare using the world's tactics, the world's rhetoric, and the world's weapons is not a way for God's people. To put it in the words of another author, state-sponsored persecution of Christians in the church would be far better for the church and far better for the glory of God than Christians being caught up in the idolatries of wealth, power, and security, or in adopting the world's tactics and attitudes to get what we think is right. What are our tactics? Prayer for kings and those who are in high places living godly and dignified lives, speaking the truth in love with humble courage, civic engagement with the freedoms that we have, caring for others and defending those that need to be defensed. Those are our tactics. Not slander and mudslinging and anger and bitterness or despair. Well, again, there's so much more to talk about and ask, isn't there? But we need to come to an end. So as we do, let me just remind you or or clarify for you my three hopes from this morning. My first hope is that we have at least an outline of Scripture's instructions for how to think about the government and the state. Principles to work from. Second, my goal has been to focus on sins we may need to repent of rather than rallying us to what we already agree on. And so my hope is that we might take time to examine our hearts and our lives this week. And third, I hope that we would be challenged by Jesus' priority and call. His priority and his call is today and in the days to come. We are God's and we belong to him. And so may we daily give our all to him and render to God what is God's, all that we have, all that we are, for the glory of his name in every way. And that is my hope and prayer for this morning. Let's pray. Father, Father, these are your words and we long to know them and understand them faithfully. And there are perhaps so many questions in our minds that we have not addressed or talked about today. So many things we might enjoy and like to work out and need to figure out. But Father, we think that you have given us some marching orders here. And so I pray that as your people... We would render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but render to God what is God's. I pray that we would think and act and live as your people. That the salt and light of your people for truth and justice in our nation would honor you. But that the way we speak and the way that we act would not be seeking power or bypassing what is moral and right and reflecting of your character but rather would be presenting a vision of another community, a community that confronts our culture with one that lives for the glory of God and love for one another and what is good and right according to your word. A community that does not shy away from speaking the truth, but does so with humility for the sake of your name. 
Father, I pray for these things. And I pray that in doing so, we would honor you with all that we are and have. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.